Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, an interview format podcast where I, your host, Mark Decano, talk to estimable figures of standing in the comedy community in a tete-a-tete, not unlike the Frost-Nixon interviews, but without the insight, gravitas, or ideally, inadvertent admissions of guilt. My guest this episode hit the stand-up comedy circuit hard, performing 100 spots in her first year, just in time to enter a global pandemic. Since then, she's been a podcaster, creating the wonderful Comedy Arcade. She's a broadcaster with fellow comic Rich Wilson on Islington Radio and a promoter of her own comedy shows across London. Comedian Vic Slayton. Hello. Hiya. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you been? You okay? Yeah. Thank you, first of all, so much for, for coming on. It's fantastic to have you. I'm delighted. I saw the poster go up recently and then I hadn't heard from you and I was I was hurt. I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard. I was like, oh no, I'm not in the A-list. Okay. All right. Oh, you have other friends. I see. I see. I get it. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. But I've been seeing other comedians. Yeah, I suspected as much <laughs> looking at your social media, but I didn't want to believe that. <laughs> but no, then you asked. Of course. Right. Of course. I, had to, I knew straight away. I said, I'm going to do this. And there's a couple of names that popped into my head straight away, including yourself. And then also I was like, what if they say no, I'll be crushed. Oh, no, we wouldn't say no. We'd leave you on red. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Fine. Fine. I'm here now. I might as well answer your questions. Yeah, let's jump in some questions and change this um, subject. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you then, how long now have you been doing stand-up? Three years. Yeah, just about three years. Obviously, two of those in and out of lockdown. Yeah. So not ideal circumstances for comedy. So my first year, I did 100 gigs in a year. Yes. So I really got into it. So I saw a lot of comedy. I saw a lot of open micers Mm -hmm. and a lot of comedians at all kinds of levels. So it was a really interesting way to start. And I would recommend that to people to set yourself the challenge. Maybe don't go as hard as I did, because towards the end, I still had (laughs) had about two weeks. I had about 16 gigs to do. So I was like, where can I double up? Um, but uh, yeah, it was such an education though you get over the sort of weirdness of it quite quickly and you get over the weirdness of it being only a few people in the audience at the smaller gigs so I was doing yeah. every gig to hit this arbitrary target that I'd set yeah is a promoter that I didn't like very much at an open mic night told me you couldn't consider yourself a comedian until you've done at least 100 gigs so I thought right I'll show you I'll do 100 gigs so uh, <laughs> I did my 100th in March 2020 yeah perfect ABMS, timing which is when my I did my first gig so I went back to Tom Tuck I was like you gave me my first gig I'd really love yeah. to do my 100th with you so I got to be part of a phenomenal lineup because ACMS is one of the the coolest most coveted weirdest gigs in town so um, <laughs> I was the one person telling my silly little stories about my silly little self while everybody else was doing really interesting experimental stuff <laughs> Yeah, Jos Norris is just clearing up his spoons. I'm going to talk about me. <laughs> COVID had just sort of, it was starting to reach a critical mass in the press because obviously there have been whispers about it for a good few weeks. Yes. That, But it wasn't our problem at the time. It felt like yeah. something that, oh, yeah, it's, oh, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a worry because, like, a, so many comedians that night did jokes about it. Yeah. Just, like, Sean Doxy had a dress made of um, surgical gloves <laughs> and did a whole thing with hand sanitizer, and it was really, really funny. Obviously, that did not last long. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, we didn't know. So we were partly going, oh, do you think there's going to be a lockdown for a couple of weeks? But we are also all talking about Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. So, yeah. I think about two or three days later, Melbourne Comedy Festival got cancelled. And then it started to feel quite real for comedians. Like gigs started to be rescheduled just for precautions. Just like, oh, you know, for the sake of safety, we'll just just make them in in May. Um, It'll all be sorted by then. And um, yeah, a couple of weeks later, lockdown kicked in. So I completed my 100 gigs. I was raring to go. I was very excited about my first Edinburgh Fringe, had my venue with Just the Tonic. Terrible idea, by the way. That that solo show, mine, would have been absolutely dreadful. <laughs> I did not have a, I didn't have 10. I certainly didn't have 45. So um, I'm not saying the pandemic came at the right time for me because there's no right time for a pandemic. But um, yeah, 
<laughs> I'm glad I'm doing it this year and not then. I'm very glad that 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 I had that two years time yeah. to think about my life choices <laughs> <laughs> and build up some material. Yeah. So yeah, well, absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot in what you've said that I want to come back to. But I'm, first thing I'm going to mention is that um, the last show I managed to see in in uh, 2020 in March was I just come back from the Leicester Comedy Festival and the Vaults Festival was on, and I went there and I managed to see. The last show of 2020, up until that point, until pandemic, was uh, Mark Watson, who was doing his. We might whip. have been there together. <laughs> we might have been there together. I saw him. <laughs> I saw him do vaults. Um, but yeah, I think it was a little bit earlier. I think it was at the start of the festival, because I went to see something before his show on. I think the last, the one of the last few days mm. um, that I reviewed for Funny Women. Yeah, then yeah. then it all. And it all, all went, yeah, it all went away. All the tickets I had booked on after him yeah. were all done, cancelled, and that was it. Yeah. Then. And then everything went <laughs> a show online. Called, a show called This Can't Be It. And it was like, no, oh, yeah. we've got a lot, we've got a lot more in store for us, Mark. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. This isn't it. This no isn't the idea. worst that it gets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me what about this influence that Mark Watson had on you and your starting comedy. <laughs> well, um, I was talking to somebody about this earlier on, actually. Um he was probably one of the main comedians that I first started to see regularly live. Yeah. So back at, well, university, I was, I used to go to the university comedy night and it would be Jared Christmas, mm-hmm. Al Pitcher, and really like decent names now, but at the time they're just on the uni circuit because I went to university way longer ago than I'd like to admit but yeah like 20 years ago and um, it's brilliant they're all still going to be honest well done well done then well done then uh, that was around the time you were supposed to start comedy so mm. I was there <laughs> drinking my six pound red wine that was rotting my liver and soul and then um glee club on a card in Cardiff was like if you didn't just want to go to the same old pubs that was one of the few things everyone was so excited when gay club opens and we had a proper comedy club in Cardiff so me and my best mate at the time used to go every sort of weekend Thursday Friday Saturday and um Watson was on it's phenomenal now to think of it that we used to pay so little and it would be Mark usually Mark Russell Howard John Richardson Ed Byrne Lucy Porter is the only female act I can remember of that era I think she was the only one going uh, (laughs) with any level of club success (laughs) sorry if there are others I've forgotten but um yeah Rob Deering like they were the that was the caliber of acts and um I just absolutely fell in love with Mark Watson's side of comedy. He was doing it in the Welsh accent at the time as well. So we we kind of felt like he was our own. We were all tricked <laughs> by Mark Watson, but I've, I've just about forgiven him now after 20 years. But um, <laughs> And I, my first ever PR job, I was given one job for the corporate party that we did every year for the partners that we worked on. And my job was to book the entertainment. So I shamelessly used that opportunity to uh, <laughs> book Mark Watson as the comedian. I had one job and I was like, what would I like? Yeah. I would like to see Mark Watson in a small gig that I pay for because we will immediately become friends. Obviously, I had it all planned out in my head, you know, 23. I was like, me and Mark Watson, because that's the beauty of a good comedian. You feel like they're talking to you yeah. about stuff that pertains to you. Like Sean Walsh is exactly the same. I genuinely am like, I'm sitting there and like, this is for me. This is, we get on so well because... I'm relating really strongly to this, but that's why they're so bloody good at it because everyone is. It's not, you're not special. We're all experiencing (laughs) these things together. But I was like, yeah, we're going to be best friends immediately. I can't wait for this to happen. Um, He absolutely took the roof off. It was such a good show. Oh, yeah. Like he really got, he'd done his research as well because, so he knew all all about the brand. He knew our CEO's name. He improvised a little song about our CEO (laughs) that, he still talks about now because we're still in touch and he, he's, he still remembers that. But um, we didn't become best friends, sadly. Um, he came to do a job that he did. We, I was too shy to basically say words, to be honest. Um, <laughs> didn't have anything. Didn't, didn't have a lot about me that night. It was quite stressed. I was doing um, general admin stuff because I was a PR assistant. So I was running around mad all night anyway. Barely had a chance to see anyone, let alone yeah. befriend them on a meaningful level. And... Um, we were following each other on Twitter then afterwards anyway, just I think, as a, you know, because he's a polite person. <laughs> That's a courtesy. <laughs> yeah. I think he followed me back on Twitter, which I forgot about. So that was oh, 15, 16 years ago. Wow, okay. Completely forgot. Yeah. 
that he was following me on Twitter, I was following him on Twitter. That, that was irrelevant at the time. Yeah. Um, carried on seeing comedy, moved to London, um, got to see a lot more comedy. It was quite exciting. Um, all this time, I was developing a fear of public speaking. So in the meantime, I was quite show-offy as a teenager. I did GCSE drama. Mm -hmm. So I was an I was my parents would say I was a precocious nightmare <laughs> of a girl because I was. I was always putting on my own shows. I wrote the music. I directed the music. It was, yeah, I was... <laughs> I'd go door to door to the neighbours, fleecing them for money to pay for tickets to see these extravaganzas. I was the worst. If we'd had the money for me to go to stagecoach, I would have been a stagecoach, little prick. But um, unfortunately, that was not, well, unfortunately, fortunately, that was not to be. Um, but yeah, over the years, I got, I started to get really nervous about having to do anything involved speaking in front of people. Yeah even meeting so it, it was just getting like the reach of it it got deeper and deeper it started to be I'd be quite uncomfortable at the idea of going in front of people but I'd ultimately get over it and do it yeah. and as the years went on it just became kind of psychosomatic so my eyelid would twitch my knees would be trembling like the stress of having to speak in front of like even like four or five people would just wipe me out. It'd be white noise in my head. So I'd usually get through it and people would enjoy it and they'd say, oh, that was great. But I hated it so much that I didn't want to do it. And I worked in a job at the time where I worked in startup tech mm -hmm. as a PR person. So I was one of the few women at senior level in the kind of startups I was working in. So I got asked to be on panels all the time. And I didn't, I was too scared to do them. But then I go to conferences and all I do is whinge that the panels are all men. So I was not, I was part of the problem. I was not part of the solution. So I made a news resolution to get over my fear of public speaking, mm -hmm. to be able to speak at corporate panels and be the change that I was demanding to see in the world from others. So <laughs> I did the Funny Women course, yes. Lynn Parker's course. It was like a half day. And it was at the Groucho and I made some incredible friends in that room as well that I'm still friends with now. It was such a brilliant, I cannot for the life of me think of 50 pounds better spent than I spent that day in that room because the lessons were really straightforward and really common sense, mm -hmm. but they shifted something in my head. I started to think of things a little bit differently and some, we were given some steps basically to kind of manage that anxiety that you have before you speak in front of people that I, I thought, you know, what, I, I, could, I could do this. And Lynn Parker at the end, when we were all saying our goodbyes, was like, OK, so what are you going to do about comedy now? And I had no plans for comedy. I mm. just wanted to be better in my day job. And I was like, oh, what are my plans for comedy? So um, <laughs> I went off with this idea in my head yeah. and I took to Twitter because that is how I do that. I live my life. I took to Twitter <laughs> and I tweeted and I put it on Facebook as well. I didn't leave anything to chance. <laughs> how does like something stupid, like how does one become a stand-up comedian? I've done a course. And uh, <laughs> funny enough, very few people had any practical suggestions on that. So people agreed that it was a good idea. They're like, oh, you should definitely do this fix. But nobody had yeah. any leads really into how you got into it. So I was like, well, I've tweeted about it once. I've put up a Facebook status. I've done all I can. It's not meant to be. I've literally done all I can. Like I've really put the work in here. And <laughs> uh, no, apparently the universe had something else for me. So Mark Watson saw that tweet 14 years after we'd first met probably yeah. they were like 10 years it's like 14 years now and um tweeted me back and said do you want to come and get over this phobia of public speaking by learning standard at my 26 hour show and yeah. uh, I said yes <laughs> I, I was in severe I, I I won't go into details but I was in digestive distress <laughs> the whole run up like the, yeah. no, nothing solid was happening there like the the anxiety of not only having to speak in front of a sold out audience in the pleasance of all places but in front of a comedy hero yeah. loads of comedy heroes it felt like the scariest thing in the world and it was a, quite a lonely experience for it to be scary because it sounds like an absolute dream come true for most people <laughs> so nobody really understood why I was making such a bloody fuss about it right. but I went yeah. on my own yeah. as well because I couldn't find funny enough couldn't find anybody else that wanted to spend 26.2 hours <laughs> in a room with me and 100 hours <laughs> I know I know loads of people now I found my people yeah. but at the time I could not find anybody who was prepared to commit to this it started at I think nine 
42 or some it was a really yeah. random time 9 42 in the evening went all the way through to midnight the next day and it got to about two so I was in a high state of anxiety for about five hours as the show went on but over time I'd come to the conclusion that it had been forgotten and I started to enjoy it and that was a mistake and um yeah <laughs> And I just got called up on stage, like every now and again, there'd be somebody, Mark would send me off with somebody to do a lesson. So I, uh, <laughs> I my first one was with Lulu Popperwell. Okay. Who took me through basically how to mine your life for material. So we had a half hour together and then I had to go up on stage with Lulu and talk about what we talked about. Ian Stone yeah. did a little lesson for me live on stage, wow. which was really fun because he was um, on his way into do his radio show at about 6am. So they got me on stage to, to chat to him. <laughs> it was very sort of Rufus Hound wrote a set for me in my notebook that I've still got somewhere in the house. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was just, that was right. And, you know, more importantly as well, that's where I met Tom Tuck yep. for the first time, who became quite an important person in my life in general, just because he's an all around brilliant person. But in terms of what happened next, because I did that and I got through it and I had a brilliant time. It, it definitely fired me up to want to be a bigger part of this, a more professional part. I saw the kind of life that I wanted to lead. Yeah. Funny enough, Rich Wilson was also in the room. Okay. But we didn't meet that day. But we were all in the same room together. He became one of my best mates <laughs> further down the line. But, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, it was a really weird day yeah. for the life that I was going to end up leading. But a couple of weeks later, Tom DM'd me mm-hmm. and said, do you because he'd gone through my five minute set with me he was so tired as well but he saw me in the corridor scribbling away on this five minutes that I was supposed to perform on stage and spent a good half an hour going through construction of jokes like the bits that were good the bits that were bad the bits that needed flushing out he was just such a generous person and that yeah. I've been taking advantage of that for three years but um <laughs> he dm me on the day that he wanted to book me mm-hmm. and said, do you want to come and do ACMS tonight? So I think he knew if he'd given me a run up to it, I probably would have bottled out. Right. Okay. So yeah. he said, come and do five, five to seven minutes tonight on stage. Yeah. And it was at the Phoenix. So again, it was like ridiculous venues to have played. So I'd been on stage at the Pleasant I was at the Phoenix and I got paid for it. <laughs> My first gig yeah. and it was it was rubbish. It was really bad. It was really, really bad. But loads of people there would had also been part of the marathon show. So they were yeah. delighted to see me having a go. Yeah. And they kind of adopted me then. I got adopted into this brilliant community of alternative, weird, supportive, brilliant people. Yeah. So, so that was yeah, that was the start of everything. And um Mark kept in touch and would check in with me. So I it was nice to have a push to go and do some of the gigs that I was doing so when I was going to do gig 10 and I was really tired yeah. everyone at work had just started drinking on a Friday night and I was going to do an <laughs> open mic where it's probably gonna be three people it was really hard graph but knowing that I could kind of check in with comedy heroes and just go so I did my 10th gig today um kind of kept me motivated yeah. on it but yeah so it's quite an unusual path in yeah but probably couldn't have worked that any other way no <laughs> is that a consistent story that you've had this select group and you've mentioned a few names there that you can talk to you can fall back on has that been consistent since that point where you just can always go back to certain people or, or new people who've sort of come into your circle it's the community kind of already exists and it's a little bit like a sick form in ways in mm. that there are sort of less less sort of confrontational than when you're in school where everybody's kind of against each other but there are definitely I'd say sort of little tribes of comedians and my heart tends to sit with the more alternative comics because that's the the style of comedy that I love unfortunately it's not the style of comedy that I write which is endlessly disappointing to me I'd love to be a little bit cooler than just yeah telling my personal weird stories about my family it feels quite occasionally I feel like I'm the most middle of the road thing on some of the cool gigs that I do but mm. um when you when you have a style of comedy does is it informed by you or do you seek out that style of comedy and say that's the comedian I want to be I mean, you've, you've touched on it there not, not going the alternative route but do you do you get to choose it or does it choose you I think you probably start as more of a pastiche of all the comedians that you love so I think you borrow heavily, even if you don't mean to, because subconsciously you've got used to, because like Eddie Azard is my favourite comedian, probably overall, 
for my whole life because she has been this consistent presence since I was about 12 or 13. I mm. wrote, I deconstructed the toaster sketch for my English language A-level, <laughs> looking at all the, yeah, all the differences in, in the voice and the tone and how the words were used to sort of the best dramatic effect. So I've kind of been intrinsically linked to Eddie Izzard for a long time. And what I didn't realise in my first iteration of my five-minute set, mm. I do something about um, European squat toilets that felt very well formed for, <laughs> compared to some of the other stuff in my sets. And it was basically, by accident, a tribute version mm. to Eddie Izzard's because it was something I'd experienced myself. So it came, you know, it was kind of parallel thinking in that I was on this Italian holiday and I thought, well, this is a French faster situation. I, I can talk about this on stage but the beats in it were very yeah it was only I think I listened back to one recently I was like oh fuck I heavily ripped that off by accident but (laughs) it was just in my head I didn't I couldn't have told you that it had come you know yeah yeah it's a bit bit of a remix if you will of an Eddie sketch so (laughs) (laughs) but yeah and just borrowing like techniques from people so even like turns of phrase like classic turns of phrase like oh yeah um I shouldn't tell you their real name but I will like it's you know where you borrow bits and pieces for that have worked for other people without it's it's more of a tribute than a I hope more of a tribute than a ripoff yeah but over time it's been about marrying up how I write with how I then deliver the jokes because I got some feedback from a brilliant, brilliant person who's been with me in the comedy industry for a long, 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 long time. Mm -hmm. She was the one that gave me my opportunity to do the Alexandra Palace gig that I did, even though it was a brand new comic. And as often happens, I'm the only person on the poster that nobody has a fucking clue who they are. (laughs) So... (laughs) it's good fun it's it's fun to be me um but, but if your if your name is there among other names then then it's it's a pretty close it? you must yeah, be funny because otherwise why would you be with these other funny people yeah. it's brilliant it's it's a, it's a scam it's an absolute <laughs> scam but <laughs> i did my set and i was pretty i was pretty happy with it yeah. like i didn't get half the way through the set that I planned because I hadn't accounted for a thousand people laughing and letting that die off is you need to kind of double the time you leave for laughs mm, yeah and I was having such a good time as well the pauses were longer because I was just standing on the stage so I never thought I'd do anything like that again I felt like this is the peak moment for me as so the main cute. character this is this is the end scene of the film <laughs> is me doing comedy so I was just enjoying it just for like this might never happen again and I'm gonna just breathe and I'm gonna look at this and I'm gonna remember it for the rest of my life but um <laughs> the feedback I got from the brilliant woman who booked me she took the time to go over the you know the technique and the delivery mm-hmm. and it was really positive but she said that the jokes that I told didn't reflect the quality of my written stuff so I do a little bit of writing for the independent voices column for example so I've written quite a lot you can find little bits of writing for me all over the place um so I used to write for standard issue um when it was a magazine so she was like basically I'd like more of that voice she's like I understand who you are really clearly when I read a piece that you've written right you need to find the spirit of that okay in your comedy and it was really revolutionary to hear to be honest I was I was upset at first obviously because nobody wants to do what you consider to be an an average job mm. or a job that doesn't do justice to you but I kind of needed to hear it and I basically ripped up well you'll know this because you've seen a lot of my <laughs> you've seen a lot of my work um, <laughs> I kind of dropped a lot of stuff that I was doing and just wrote new right yeah. things mm-hmm. and I enjoy the new stuff more and it does the, the new stuff does feel a lot more like me and I guess the show that I'm doing at the moment is almost it's a mixture of the two mm-hmm. and I'd like yeah because basically I am both the people those people effectively so I'm the person that wrote that early very lightweight material where mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff because it's about pettiness where it's all like oh cutesy 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 I do this petty stuff but yeah. the sort of later iteration of it is more about actually I don't think this is like cutesy petty stuff maybe I'm a bit of a dick, but maybe I'm all right with it. So it's it's through a very different filter. It's less like lighthearted, like hee hee hee, stole, stole the toaster from the kitchen and more like, hmm, I strategically made the decision to ruin this person's day. Like <laughs> maybe I'm the problem. So it's it's a little bit darker in tone, I think, but yeah. still hopefully relatable. I don't want people to go away and think that I might hunt them down and, you know. <laughs> 
few petty acts of aggression if they give me a two-star review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's sort of and it's weird because I used to be really nervous yeah. doing this just just at the start, I was nervous about getting on the stage, mm. but I was a lot freer with the material. Like I wasn't afraid to just tell a story and see where it went. But the longer I've got into it, the more invested I've been yeah. in it being good. I'm nervous in a different way now. So I'm not nervous about going out and standing on stage. It's not the physicality of doing it. I'm now nervous that I'm not going to express myself in the same way or it's not going to go well or people will come away and they'll think they'll get the wrong impression of me. It's uh, mm. yeah, it's a different different key of anxiety. Is it more sort of nervous for the material than for yourself? Yeah, I d- definitely. Like I care more. It's less about I'm out here doing it. So if they like it, that's fine. But either way, I'm having a good time. <laughs> so you're talking there about doing the course and about learning what's good and what's right for you have you found that you've learned any specific lessons or have you developed any philosophies in your time that sort of go well you know I can pretty much say that this is this is gospel now because I've seen it so many times just I guess just keep going like don't dwell on like you're only the trouble is you are you you find this out relatively quickly you're only as good or as bad as your last performance. So every time you step on stage, it's a new audience and a new mindset. You get a complete fresh page to start over. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you've absolutely killed the night before, you can, or even on the same night. I went to Berlin and did the same seven minute set in two clubs on the same night. And I, I've never gigged, I, I did one gig in Amsterdam before lockdown, but 10 of the audience were my mates. So it was a false positive. <laughs> like they had a brilliant time. They were just delighted that I was there. So I I had no idea going on my own with no reps in the audience, yeah. how my comedy would translate in another country. Yeah. So I was working over there and I just on a whim kind of signed up for a couple of comedy nights. And because of, um, because of my impressive CV that even I don't understand why I've got it, um, I got on. <laughs> They, they let me on yeah. and um the first the first one I did was incredible I I had the best time I had a seven minute set but I probably only did five minutes so I was riffing with the audience I was mm-hmm. being a bit cheeky about the act before and they were really really enjoying it and I was like these are my people yeah I'm big in Berlin this is <laughs> this thing I am cool tell the people back home I am cool because Berlin's cool and they like me I'm cool yeah. and um then I went and that was about 35 people in quite a small room so it was a really intimate cool gig yeah with comedy fans earlier gig as well so people were drunk then I went to an aircraft hangover place called Cosmic Comedy which was a massive purpose like the kind of venue that a small town would have as its main entertainment hub. It was <laughs> massive. It was this really long room. It was high ceilings. It was a proper stage. I was really excited about it because they were recording all the sets professionally. I was like, brilliant. I haven't got a new set recorded. Yeah. This is going to be fucking great. Famous last words. Um, <laughs> almost exactly the same set. And they, they hated it. they ate it I mean it wasn't dead silence but it was tittering and pockets of laughter like there was I didn't nothing landed nothing landed comprehensively for every single person so in front of about 120 expats a lot of US people so maybe that was the thing I'm not sure I'm a US comic because they're a little bit more noisy and in your face that's what I was that's you know I've gone through a lot of excuses on my own behalf and that's what I came to <laughs> but uh yeah it just died I couldn't even find it and the, the video is gorgeous and I'm normally really self-conscious about how I come across but it's, it's a I, I was happy with how I looked at it which I very really am I couldn't even find 20 seconds that was good enough to share like yeah. I went through and I think I found a seven second clip that I was able to put on Instagram because I wow. I'd done it and I wanted people people to know I'd done it they didn't have to know how how badly it went I don't know why I'm telling you but um I, I am <laughs> well. it was harrowing and I had to get to the end and that's the thing I guess from an advice point of view yeah you can't give up. You do have to keep digging. And I got a couple of jabs in at the end where things got better with mm. a bit of material that was a little bit more universal. But when I was about three minutes in, I looked at my watch and I was like, how have I got four minutes left? This is yeah. the long, dark cocktail hour of the soul. <laughs> and I, I, you, you get through it. You, it, it. Everything will end. This too shall pass. Like you get through yeah. it. Came back to the UK, did my night in Limehouse and everything was fine again. Like yeah. you are... You can you live and die on an individual basis every night, but that is the freedom of it. Yeah. 
And that's why you can't let one piece of material go. If you like it and an audience doesn't get it, you have to test it a few more times because there's a chance that maybe they were just not, they weren't your people. So yeah, yeah it's quite, it's quite liberating, but obviously it's scary <laughs> as well because it's you that people are judging. Like there's yeah. not, it's not even you hiding behind a, a work presentation or stats. It's, it's all you. So if they don't like the material, they don't like you and you kind of have to live with that. But I think that's been really useful for me as a human being because I'm such a people pleaser <laughs> as a rule. My DNA is people pleasing. So <laughs> to come to terms with people not liking me and it being okay yeah. has been, yeah. Well, the Beatles got their bit. start in Berlin and no one, not everyone liked them at the beginning. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they should try cosmic comedy. But no, I've, uh, I've, it sounds like I didn't like it. And it's, Fuck, it's a brilliant club because yeah. it's guys that set up a comedy night there and it went so well they were able to just buy it and they've turned it into this perfect venue and it's got dry ice and like I said professional filming it's got an audience of people prepared to be there because it doesn't start until like 10 30 locked in for two to three hours yeah. paying a decent amount of money I think it's like an 11 euro ticket charge they have smashed it what they're doing with comedy is incredible but I don't think I ever want to do it again personally. Yeah. It's like the gong show. I recognize it's useful for some people, but it's not for me. Yeah. yeah, that's another bit of advice. Don't feel like you have to do gong shows. I, I felt like I had to do them as a rite of passage. Mm. And I could have I could have sat that out. I didn't need to ever go through that. Yeah. Like the King Gong at the comedy store was one of the most brutal situations I've ever volunteer voluntarily put myself through. And I've had a seven-hour tattoo. So that is so something. Gong shows have been almost universally decried by every comedian I've ever seen. I don't know why Unless anyone does them. <laughs> Unless you're good at them. They're a real gateway to getting on a pro clubs. So like if you smash that room, you're a club comic, basically. Whereas I'm more of a long rambling comic. Like I did a tryout for the Glee Club in uh, I think February of last year yeah. uh, this year and um it went really well for me like I was happy with that I came up the stage I was happy with it yeah. it was a really great green room to be in Maisie Adam was there Matt Price was emceeing it was really chilled out really lovely night a proper dream to play Glee Club in Cardiff as well which is where I started being a comedy fan mm. it was unreal I had the best time but the feedback I got was my jet count wasn't high enough because my setups are quite long for the payoffs and okay. they're worth it, yeah. but it's, yeah. So one thing for me, because I graduated on tens quite quickly and I did not look back at five because I can barely tell a single story in five minutes. But um, <laughs> that's another piece of advice when you're a comedian. Work on the five. Even if you don't have to do fives anymore, do five so you're good at them because you get to my level and that's all you're offered as tryout spots. I had to do one at Frog and Bucket and it was a five and I was like... Mm. Fuck, I don't have a five. <laughs> I barely introduced myself and I'd lost two minutes. I looked at the watch, I was like, eh. Frog and Bucket was really cool though. That was that is such a cool venue to play. And again, a female run venue. What a legend. Jess at Frog and Bucket. Yep. An icon. Yep. So well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about female nights, females in comedy and female run comedy. You're a promoter yourself as well with your own comedy yeah. nights. So tell me, how did how did you go from let's be honest, it's been a short time. You know, you're yeah. already doing promotions. You're you're doing podcasting, broadcasting, as well as stand up. There's many strings in your bow. Is there any strings yet unstrung that you haven't tried yet that you want to have a go at? Um, I I guess I'm of the view because I said I feel so grateful to be doing it because I lived a very normal mm. life. Like I did my PR job. I was earning decent money. I live in a nice house. I've got a nice husband. I've got yeah. pets. I had a really nice quality of life, but this yep. glittery little path opened up in front of me and completely changed everything. Like, I didn't know I could love and be committed to anything as hard as this. Um, it's yeah, it's, it is the mm -hmm. hardest I've ever worked on the least rewarding thing in some ways that you could ever do. Cause it is, it's, it's a craft for all the pictures you see. It, it is you leaving parties early or trekking across mm. town, like an hour and a half on, on public transport to do five minutes on stage to possibly an audience you, you never know until you get there so yeah I did yeah. about 20 open mic gigs some of them were brilliant really well run some of them were horrendous but I thought mm -hmm. in terms of giving acts and experience and a platform I kind of wanted to create a comedy night that I would like to go to 
where there was yeah. you know somewhere where comics could sit and make their notes where maybe you get a free drink for being part of it where it was warm where the mm-hmm. audience was nice where it felt safe so I started my own one yeah. just because I needed to practice as well and I, my local pub let me that's that's the long and short of it I drunkenly asked them went back holiday weekends why don't you do comedy here there's a room upstairs and they said do you want to do comedy and I said yes so um then I dm'd Jen Brister <laughs> absolutely battered drunk and said I want to run a all-female lineup in my local pub will you come and be the headliner for me and I had what was probably the first of several reverse auctions that I've had with pro comedians which is why none of them have got any money because my day job paid quite well so I offered her what I thought was mm. a reasonable amount of money for her time and she was like that is too much money I was yeah. like what He's like, no, that's too much money for the day that you're asking for. And so I was like, well, what about this then? And she's like, no, that's still too much money. I was like, how are we? What? This is the weirdest <laughs> thing I've ever been involved in. And then Rich Wilson did exactly the same thing, like basically told me off for offering that money because he was like, who took that money? They ripped you off, like properly straight straight away, protective yeah. older brother style, like before we'd even met. This is on Facebook Messenger when I was trying to book him. He was like, who, who told you? Who told you that's what you should pay? <laughs> like outraged outraged on my behalf but um so yeah I ran a few nights and they they went they went well the first couple were and this is the thing like I got into a bit of an argument with a promoter that the promoter that made me do 100 gigs without even knowing that that they inspired that so I should thank them really because they really leveled me up pretty quickly also said that it it cheapens comedy when new comedians tried to set up their own nights because it people would come along to our amateur efforts mm. and then they wouldn't want to pay for the actual good nights that were set up, which is... Okay. Because, yeah, and I got questioned quite heavily on why Why do you think you'd be a good promoter? What makes you think you could do it? And I was like, well, I've been working in marketing and PR for 15 years. What are your promotion credentials, actually? Um, yeah. And I kind of agree. Like, looking back, I, I will, you know, I won't start arguments, but I'll finish them. But I kind of agree. I can see where he was coming from in the rationale that a lot of people who aren't maybe getting booked for the gigs they want will set up their own night. And it's quite an easy currency as well as a comedian to have your own night to offer when you're bartering to be on nights with other people. But that's how all these bringers have popped up where you have to bring a hostage to be able to perform. And, you know, they have a purpose, but often if you're having to run a bringer long-term it's because there's not a natural comedy audience there for you. And those people aren't the best audience to test jokes on. If they're just there as a favor to a mate or they're another comedian being brought so they can bring you, which yeah. is the kind of deals that go on. Like there's nothing worse than a 30 comedians that are all focused on their own set or nonplussed and not interested because they're not there to enjoy comedy. Cause it's just, a, it's a work night. So yeah. I kind of took I took his point on board, but just like everybody who thinks they're a main character, I did not think it applied to me. Um, so <laughs> the first couple were definitely mostly friends and family, but a lot of them came back and not because they were supporting one of my many ridiculous ventures, but they yeah. genuinely enjoyed it. They discovered comedians they wouldn't have seen before. They started supporting those comedians. So I know a lot of people went to see Jen Brister afterwards because they'd message me and say, I've just been to see Jen Brister at Streatham or... Yeah, it did. It opens a lot of people's eyes, my friend's eyes, to comedy when they weren't comedy fans. And I love that as well. It's nice being an evangelist for for stand-up. And yeah, it just, (laughs) it worked. It was a monthly gig. It was going really well before the pandemic. And in the cracks between lockdowns, I was able to keep it going. Yes. Because the pub was fully on board. We tried to do one in the garden. We had two complaints to the council. So we had to come in and do it social distance. So it was like 10 tickets in the room, basically. But comedians were so desperate to perform that we were able to run. And they were some of the best nights that I think I've done. We had like Sean Walsh in in a room so small, you'd never see him do that again. (laughs) It was properly weird old times to be alive. But yeah. It's yeah. it's been really enriching. I've enjoyed the promotion elements a lot, but yeah, I, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get the kind of audience that I don't want to book acts unless I can guarantee. Yeah, it's a lot of money. I don't make money on any of them. Hmm. It, and they they probably cost me about hundred pounds each in the end because I buy buy rounds of drinks as well, and I'm texting going, "Does anyone want chips?" Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, you're your own worst enemy then, aren't you, in the money-making front? 
yeah I don't mind though like I said up, up until like the last few months where everything became more expensive mm. I was on such a nice even keel with my day job that I was quite happy to take a loss yeah because I I loved it and I enjoyed contributing to the comedy scene so I where possible when I started my podcast I I paid people to come on it because I had the money. I wasn't spending it on anything else. Yeah. My salary was decent. I had the money. I was able to say, look, for half hour of your time, come and do this for me. Mm. And it's just been, yeah, it was nice to be connected to those people. It was lovely to have them in the room. So it was it was always well worth it. But yeah, the last few months when energy bills started to go up mm. and the interest rates have gone up, all of my repayments for everything have gone up. And all of a sudden, I don't have any money. So um, I'm having to look at, from a promotions point of view, how much of that kind of free work I can do putting nights mm-hmm. on yeah. and start treating it like a job. Because I do like a cheeky glass of wine, even when I'm on the bill somewhere. Because you're in a pub. Yeah. So that, that, has to, that has to stop. That has to stop. I, I can't afford it. <laughs> do, you find, do you find your experience as a stand-up and or promoter has been different based on gender yeah I think so um it's as a comedian particularly female comedian you often find yourself on your you're delighted when there's another woman on the bill when it's like a four or five act night yeah. still to this day and everybody's always got a good reason why their night doesn't have like oh we, we booked these women they dropped out and only this this straight white man was available and I get that as a promoter because you know mm. a lot of the lineups do shift particularly if you're running new material where it's free even right up to the minute that they are due to be on the show, if they get a pay kick, they absolutely should take it. Mm. So I never really hold people to any kind of new material spots because I, I totally get that they need to make the most money yeah. in the most efficient way to be able to survive. But so there are scenarios where probably the planning, they, they meant in the planning stage to have representation, but it's depressing that it is still seen as representation. Mm. I think that you are like, oh, I've ticked the box. I've got one woman on. I've got one BAME act tick. Or, you know, if you can get a woman who was also that tick, brilliant. That's that's both boxes cats and now four mm. straight white men. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's not just promoters and comedians that are the problem. I think the problem is that if you ask your average audience, unfortunately, because they've not seen enough female comedians to get mm. the diversity of the range. Yeah. Because like you don't like four men could dress almost identically, come out and talk four different versions of yeah. their own banal truth. Yeah. So yeah, if it's four women, and then Jason Manford came on and said, "Oh yeah, why don't we make the doors of Greg smaller so fat people can't get in?" Like nobody's walking away from that gig going, "Oh, men aren't funny." Mm. But when you are the only woman on a bill of four men doing material that you're familiar with, material that you're comfortable with, material you've seen on telly. Yeah. Because that they are the voice you hear on telly. You know that as comedy. Yeah. It's almost subversive to have a woman, and you 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 don't trust it immediately. You, you're braced for maybe that. Oh, maybe they're going to talk about me. Oh, no, maybe they're going to talk about periods. And you know, it's fine though. It's fine to talk about that because that is something that affects fifty percent of the population. Yeah. But even women, women are the are the worst offenders in audiences for coming up at the end going, "I don't normally like female comedians, but you were really funny." And I was like. What do you mean you don't like female comedians? Like all of us, you've seen every single one because I find that hard to believe. Like, like the range you get. Oh, for sure. in, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's mad that you are on a bill and you sort of feel like you are carrying the reputation of female comedians if there's a lot of men on and you're the only woman because that is, they'll go, well, the, the weakest act tonight, the woman mm. one, obviously. Um, yeah, it would be nice for it not to be a point to prove or disprove like this women aren't funny thing but it is very much I think it's it's kind of programmed into us like everybody knows like even in like family groups I did some research Mm -hmm. on this for my day job and both men and women unanimously agreed that their dad was the most funny person that they knew like men thought they were the funniest person in their own life whereas women Mm -hmm. never said that and it's like you kind of forget that women who go out in groups together we're not sitting there in silence we're normally you know that's the trope it's women on a hen like absolutely cackling yeah. like hysterically with each other we we're, we've all got it in us to be funny it's not yeah. a gendered thing so I think it's kind of it's almost how we're brought up as much as anything I think it's a very complicated thing you can see why promoters sometimes put all male acts on because maybe they don't sell the tickets with all female acts on so I feel like there's the responsibility is with everybody, but I think it's with the bigger, like like TV. Yeah. I think 
TV really needs to be doing some heavy lifting in normalizing yeah. women in comedy and yeah queer voices and non-binary voices like bringing that to the forefront so people do feel more comfortable with it when they when they're on in a club and they see these names on the bill yeah. and there's that endorsement if, if people have been on tv you feel like oh they must be good so you go into it with a different mindset somebody you've never seen before where you're sort of braced in case they might be rubbish <laughs> so I think everybody it's it's not as simple as everybody just promising to have three men three women two non-binary people two yeah. disabled comedians like it's not as simple as, as, as all taking a list and ticking a box but we can still all do that anyway yeah <laughs> it won't solve the problem but if we're not part of solving the problem we're we are the problem yeah. so I think you can see why everybody who runs their own small night thinks why should I make the effort to do this when nobody else is but if we all think like that mm. nothing will change so yeah yeah I've thought about this a lot yeah. <laughs> what about comedy for you because now that comedy is for you is kind of part of your work day do you still have comedy as a leisure activity do you go and see you live comedians do you watch them on the tv <gasps> that's what I do on my days off I go and see other people's shows um I had a whole week of comedy a couple of weeks ago and I saw Paul McCaffrey on the Monday yep. in Soho Theatre and then I saw Stamp Town on the Friday because Jordan Gray was headlining it yep. and um it was so good I loved this. and Julia Masley and I'd never seen Vigo Venn before and then a couple of days later because Vigo Venn mentioned that he was doing a work in progress at the Bill Murray in a couple of days so I went to that as well me and my friend <laughs> Leslie who's also a comedian, um, ended up going to the late night. We did an open mic that I hosted and the show was at 11 and there was a tube strike on. So we got the bus to the Bill Murray to go and see his show at 11. Yeah, um, yeah I still love it as much as I ever did. I think it's an absolute joy to be on the bill. I'm always one of the people like fighting my way out of the green room to try and watch it from the back. It's yeah. very surreal and exciting. I never get bored of it. And I'm, I love discovering new acts as well. Um, I genuinely get such a buzz out of seeing people do well that I've seen in, in smaller gigs with me. Like Dan Tiernan's one at the moment. He is absolutely phenomenal. He's he's everywhere at the moment. And it's really exciting to see. Cause, um, he did the Edinburgh Fringe show before Comedy Arcade that I was on last year. Yep. And he ran over every day. The man cannot keep time. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> You can't even be mad at him. You can't even be mad. We got on so well that it was just, it cost me about 10 minutes of my prep time every day. But you could see, you could see the talent he had. And um, I was unlucky enough to go on after him at Leicester Square, new comedian of the year. And I might as well have just laid down on the floor and just rolled around crying rather than do my five minute set because he was, he took it up so high because yeah. the set just built and built and built because he's really high energy. And I do not have any of that. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to be more physical in my comedy at the moment, but <laughs> I am just a girl standing in front of a microphone and I genuinely had to open with, do you know what? I hate that I have to go after him as well. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> he was really good like vote for him um you will you will vote for him um but yeah there's nothing like it when you're standing waiting to go on I don't do competitions anymore for that reason because like it's so subjective and comedy's so different that yeah, uh, yeah I, I knew I didn't have a chance in hell and to be honest that was a set where I actually quite enjoyed I thought I'd done the best I could do as well I was like genuinely that was a solid five for me and it completely wasn't good enough because <laughs> the guy before me was so so good so yeah, it's fun when you see those people that you know have got it. And you're just like, I'm going to see them again. Yeah. And he's just been signed, I think, to either Blue Book or one of the big agents. And it's so deserved. And it's really nice when you see people who work really hard yeah, yeah. get successful as well. Because And I think you, I see it more in comedy than in any other area of life, really. Because Pope Lonergan's book is out at the yeah. moment and it's getting rave reviews everywhere. I can't think of anybody more deserving because he's genuinely one of the one of the kindest people I've met in comedy. Um, really supportive. He used to put me up for gigs when I was a new comedian. Always sort of, he's always sort of putting the ladder down for other people. He came and did a work in progress with me and uh, Ashish Suri, who's another one who's doing really well at the moment. And uh, there were only three people in the room. <laughs> And he performed it and I was mortified because I'd invited him along to do it. And he performed it like there was a proper audience in because yeah. everyone's a pro And that's something you do learn from the real greats, I think, that everyone is a proper audience. Like whether it's two people or one person, they paid the money or they've just given you their time and you owe them more than saying, oh, there's normally more people in the room than yeah. this. And it's, I think those are the true masters of it that just go, okay, 
I don't even need the microphone. I can just sit here. There's three of you. Yeah gather rounds will treat it more like a, a conversation and like those are the where I've really felt like I've learned from bigger comedians they're in smaller rooms like that where for whatever reason cheap strike mm. off the beaten track promising by the promoter that that they didn't promote like yeah. they are the places where I really have learned the most and and Pope was like that he put it he just put on such a show for these three people <laughs> in the audience I was like I want to be like that I want to feel you know I want anybody whether it's one person at Edinburgh Fringe who's taken the chance and come see me or a thousand I want them to walk away feeling like they didn't waste their time yeah. so yeah he's great I'm so glad that his book is doing so well excellent so is there has there been a moment for you that sort of stands out in your mind as just a scene that you never thought you'd see and that you're suddenly a part of that you thought my god this is like the, this is the pinnacle of everything that's happened yeah it's probably I would say it's probably that Leicester Square Theatre gig that I did that I got to MC, and it was because like you said it's a lot of things are haphazard hmm. I got approached by this brilliant charity called Women and Children First yep. um, who do lots of work in developing countries about so empowering communities to take control of medical things that should be solved by now like you've got we've got the technology we've got the medicine so empowering people to do something about that yep. in their communities rather than sort of parachuting in like saviors we're here to rescue you so it's a really cool charity and this this lovely man called Mark got in touch with me Mark's a, a typically good yeah. Good in comedy, good, Marks, yeah. I think, as a rule. <laughs> I've had a really good run of Watson, <laughs> Watson comedy nerd, Mark Mina from um, Word and Children Fist. And uh, he got in touch and said, I'm doing this comedy show at Leicester Square Theatre. I'm looking for an MC and I was hoping that you'd do it. And I looked up the lineup of the one before and it was a phenomenal lineup. And I can't remember, it was someone like Susie Ruffle as the MC of the year before. I was genuinely convinced that he had approached me by mistake, <laughs> that he thought I was someone else. Like, I was like, do you think I'm Amy Gledhill? That, ha- that has happened before. <laughs> so I genuinely thought he's got the right end of the stick here, but I'll say yes, because fuck it. That's what a straight white man would do. I was like, yes, yeah, sure. I can't wait. And then he started following me on Twitter. And I was like, so he definitely he does know who I am because so I still wasn't confident I still wasn't confident I was like maybe I'll just be a reserve and then if a real big name comedian comes along then they'll do it because all the names got announced so it was James Acaster, Cindy V, Mike Wozniak, Olga Koch, Nathan Caton as the names were sort of being revealed to me by Mark who was just keeping me up to date on it and then the poster came out and went live and I was like okay my face is on the poster this is definitely on (laughs) I can talk to friends and family about it now. But I finally got up the courage to say to him, I was just like, uh, can I just ask you a quick question? Because obviously, you know, all the other people from telly. Yeah. How did you find me? <laughs> and he said he'd seen a clip of me online somewhere and he'd looked at my website, watching the videos on my website. And he liked me. So he gave me a chance, even though I was not a big draw, a big crowd draw. That was the kind of vibe he had. It was his gigs put together. He was a massive comedy fan. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was really cool to, we met up and I, so we talked through all the charity stuff, but it was really cool to be there on the night because it was so, because he's a comedy fan and he loves the charity so much, he's so deeply ingrained into it. He really wanted the night to go well. And obviously, because it was like a career high for me, mm. I really wanted it to go well as well. So it felt like we were a bit of a team. Yeah. And there was this moment where we were standing behind the curtain and um I bullied him into announcing me onto the stage because there'd been no plan for that. So they wanted me to announce myself on the offstage mic. It was like, I don't even know I, I can say words. I was like so <laughs> excitable. I was like, I might walk out in front of the mic and just go <laughs> into it uh, or look down and I'll be naked. Um, but so I managed to get him and he was really nervous about doing the offstage mic. And it, in a, like in that way where something gets sprung on you. And we just stood there and I was like, look, Mark, if you can do this, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, yeah, unreal. It was unreal to be in that green room. It was, the whole thing was ridiculous. Yeah. It was such a privilege. And I genuinely thought, yeah, life probably is not going to get much better than this. But I thought that last time I had a big gig. So I'm prepared to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your show then, the solo show. You're taking it to Edinburgh. What's it called? When's it on? What's it all about? Uh, more fiction than girls so like I said it kind of covers off like the versions of myself that I kind of live with every day and them coexisting so how I present myself to the world this is what's going on inside my head at those given moments I'm I'm really excited about it it's just the tonic the mash house it's the attic 
which is a small enough room that hopefully if, if there are only a couple of people in every day that's we're gonna have a good time it's not gonna feel I don't want the audience to feel pressured to have like to be really big for me so if it is that kind of vibe then we'll we'll all be fine I reckon <laughs> I like the match uh, so it's a good it. venue yeah some big comedians have gone through that room yeah. and gone on to to bigger sure. things so it's it's hallowed grounds to say the least so i'm excited about that that's 2 40 so that's in the afternoon yep. and then at 11 20 um through a series of unfortunate incidents that somehow ended really well um i'm at underbelly bristow square with my podcast comedy arcade panel show so yeah late night mayhem in a really flashy venue <laughs> i thought i was doing it free fringe but my free fringe venue they lost the room that they booked oh, me right. into and then they couldn't give me an equivalent time slot yeah. or venue in the local area. And so Underbelly stepped in, mm-hmm. perfect. made me an offer I couldn't refuse because I had no other offers. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's quite a surreal pinch moment. So I'll be in one of the big four venues. So I'll be in the brochure with like the Pleasance people. Like, yeah. Just, it's just, I do this in my, in my house, in my kitchen table. <laughs> for, the, for the minor, <laughs> the tiny, small group of people who don't yet know what Comedy Arcade is, can you give us a synopsis? <laughs> yes, so it's comedians and interesting people, so it's not always comedians, um, competing to tell the best story from a random topic that I generate from a bingo ball. So um, for the podcast, normally it's three comedians that you'll hear voices of. For the live shows, I tend to go four because it's less pressurized for people to come up with something fun on the spot. And also because the conversation can be a little bit more raucous. So I don't have to worry about editing it. So, um, yeah. So it's four, four people. We've got Rich Wilson is doing every single one. Of course. At Edinburgh Fringe, because yep. he is my Alan Davis <laughs> to my Sandy Toxic. So he's there, like my anchor doing every one, stopping me from going mad. <laughs> and he has, he has done so much. His life has been so bloody ridiculous and busy that he's got a story for everything i don't think i've heard the same story more than twice (laughs) in about 50 shows that we've done together like live and um on the podcast so yeah he's he's a good anchor do you like to make a wager now how many times he's going to try and mention rumpelstiltskin (laughs) it's banned that and his um that and his sauna story. It's oh, yeah, yeah. He's not allowed to tell anything. Uh, his, new, his new show is going to be phenomenal, though. I've seen some of the work. He's really put a lot of heart into it. He's, he's such a great club comic that he can get away with murder and he doesn't need to sit down and write stuff because he's just got it. But he's really, he's put the work in this year. I think it's going to be his best show yet. So I'm really excited to see it. And I've got Jenny Ryan mm-hmm. doing two of the three weeks as well from The Chase because yep. she came on a November show as a guest and just never left. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is brilliant. She is so much fun. She's another person that's got all these brilliant stories. She's a natural conversationist as well. So she keeps the chat going and you need those people that are not selfish that will sometimes ask the question that needs to be asked that keeps the conversation moving and they don't need to sort of hog the mic and um, those people are very special so um, Tom Tuck is doing ACMS as part of his run which clashes with the show so hopefully he'll do a couple because he was episode one official he was one of my first ever players (laughs) And he's been a brilliant sport. Like I said, he's just been, he's just been the person that just crops up every now and again, like a kind of comedy fairy godfather, yeah. just keeping me on the straight now. So yeah, the guests we've got booked are insane. Mark Watson's going to do a couple. Um, got Scott Bennett, Alison Spittle, Sakisa, Charlie George. Um, it's unreal that people have said yes. I do not understand it. Like I said, in my mind, it's just a silly idea I had when I was drunk all the time in lockdown. I can't understand it. <laughs> got this out of hand um the next episode's got rufus hound on it who wrote in my book on my first show so it feels like quite a nice um full circle moment to to have him back fantastic well it sounds like it's going to have some fantastic shows i'm really looking forward to seeing it um i'm going to be there for a week and i've put in as many uh, comedy arcades as i can and of course your show different show show every time time. isn't it so i've seen it a number of times live and it's always always fantastic never not had a great night I think the Robin Morgan, Robin Ince, Rich one was one of my favourites. Oh, you were at that one in, the, in the Water Rats, rats yeah, for Camden Fringe. That was a lot. And unfortunately, Steve Bennett from Chortle was in as well. So that's how I got my review. But I was so I was so lucky. Four stars. Absolutely smashed it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Nobody claims to read Chortle until they've got a review that's good, and then all of a sudden they acknowledge that everyone's secretly reading Chortle because it's our, <laughs> it's like our sixth form magazine. We're all reading it. We need to just come out. We are, we are, we're reading it. We're listening. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so finally, then for me, please, Vic Slayton, can you sum up comedy in a nutshell? <laughs> it's yeah it's <laughs> it's beyond description but i know that's that's cheating isn't it it's um yeah it's it's one of the single tracks of the album that is life that you will keep coming back to so I like that it's my it's it's the mr bright side of my life as a like, nice it just yeah it just underpins everything i think if you approach things with humor you will have a nice time even when you're having a dreadful time so yeah lovely poetic way to to put it I like that thank you (laughs) thank you thank you for having me this has been such a joy I love talking about comedy I'm such a nerd for it (laughs) that's my job to be the nerd okay (laughs) I know sorry sorry about that (laughs) well it's been absolute pleasure as it always is to talk with you I appreciate you coming on the show fantastic (laughs) thank you for having me see you later bye